Digital Marketing Radio, episode 235, Social Media Strategy for B2B Brands. Digital Marketing Radio with David Bain. Hi, I'm David Bain and this is Digital Marketing Radio, the show for in-house agency and entrepreneurial marketers who want to stay on top of the latest tools, tactics and trends shared by today's modern marketing masters. Is it possible to make your B2B brand popular on social media? It seems a lot easier to be on social media as an individual or as a personal brand or even as a B2C brand compared with a B2B brand. But is social media really that more difficult for B2B brands? And what precisely should B2B brands be doing on social media? We'll find the answer to those questions and more from today's guest. A man who counts the NHS Virgin and Specsavers among his clients. He's one of the founding team and director of growth for Content Cal, a content marketing platform that's used by over 40,000 businesses around the world. Welcome to DMR, Andy Lambert. Hello, hello. I love your intro, David. Uh, I think any aspiring podcasters uh, should look at your show as an example of how to do an intro. Oh, such a pro, aren't you? Thank you. Well, some of the time. <laughs> the thing is, I'm always adding something to it and just trying to confuse myself just a little bit more. But uh, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily advise on doing that to, to start with. I've I've done about 235 episodes of this particular show and loads of other podcasts. And uh, I, I tend to advise people working up, um, start with an audio, audio-only podcast. We're obviously live streaming at the same time, recording a video and things like that. But it's fun. As long as you have fun doing it, then that's, that's good. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. So you can find Andy over at contentcal.io. Uh, we're talking about um, B2B brands and social media today. So Andy, is social media actually different for social for B2B brands? No. <laughs> okay. Fundamentally, <laughs> it's not. Well, that was the end of today's um, show. Thank you for joining yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're done. Um, yeah, social media is overcomplicated by many people or strategists or whatever. Fundamentally, it's the, it's the same thing. It's just that many businesses are fearful of it being the same thing as other channels, personal brands or B2C organizations might use social. So typically businesses have used social media channels in the same way that they've used other content marketing channels, which is in in most cases quite an antiquated approach to things. So whilst that might be a little bit provocative, um, fundamentally the way of that all businesses should use social irrespective of their industry, their vertical, there are some exceptions. I appreciate this. There are some exceptions. But in the main, B2B businesses need to approach social media like any other organization. Because the first thing you need to think about is it's I don't really believe actually that B2B or B2C actually exists anymore. It's more kind of business to consumer or peer-to-peer is probably the better way of putting it. Um, and when you start to think through that lens, then Tactics, strategy, and creativity all becomes a whole heap easier. That'd be my view. So Gary Farmer, tuning in live, watching us. Um, thanks for tuning in, Gary. Any questions, please ask, and we'll uh, ask the questions to Andy. Um, Andy, I, I guess it's a challenge then for maybe directors of B2B brands, because surely there's a, a, a an issue or a, a perceived issue that um, if you gave marketers full leeway um, to show personality on social media, then it's perhaps going completely a different direction to how they want their brand perceived online. It's a very good question. That is right at the heart of the fear of it. So there's there's lots of practical things you could do uh, to address this, which is clear tone of voice guidelines, make sure there's a clear values and mission statement that the whole business need to understand. But 
quite fundamentally, outside of those kind of practical things, it's a massive behavioural shift that businesses need to go through. And it's difficult, right? There's there's nothing I can say is going to make that particularly easier or more palatable for businesses to say, actually, the more powerful thing you have in your organisations on social isn't necessarily your brand. This is a, not the case for every business. I'm excluding some of the massive, massive enterprises. Take Salesforce or or a HubSpot of the world. People that generally have power behind their B2B organizations. I'll add Drift into that list as well. But underneath that, for a typical B2B organization, I'm missing a huge trick where you're not using the voice of the employees and the voice of the organization gets so much stronger as a result. Yes, it requires lots of people to have more faith in it. When I say lots of people, I mean directors, as you say, a B2B marketing organization to have more faith. Um, but the opportunities there if if businesses choose to take it but it's a it's a fear that stops this from happening right now not the um the kind of opportunity that exists for businesses that do it well so two quick follow-up questions in relation to that um firstly if you do allow individuals to have more of a voice for a b2b brand what happens if that individual leaves that organization should that be a fear for the directors and just secondly slightly in relation to that is how do you actually draw a line in between the brand voice and the personal voice to ensure that the tone shared is fairly consistent? Let's answer the tone one first. So firstly, absolutely, it should be consistent. So whilst everyone have their own slight personality, like the way that you deliver content is different to how I would deliver content, but we can all work to one. You and I could work together on one kind of corporate brand message and what message and uh, tone of voice that we might have. So so some clear brand guidelines, clear tone of voice document, uh, clear social media policy. With those three things in place, we've got the guidelines and the frameworks we need to make sure we are saying the things and what you believe is what I believe as well, which is what the organization believes. So our worldview is aligned. So once that's in place, then ultimately you can start to think about some creative freedom on this. And it does take some time for people to, to have a voice on social. Uh, we're going through it in our own organization at the moment, and it is, it's not natural for everyone, and not everyone wants to, to be public facing, right? Not everyone can deliver as naturally as like you can, for example, David. So there's, there's a lot of training that needs to happen as part of this. But fundamentally, everyone should have a similar tone, they should have a similar message. So that really is you know, that's quite an easy thing to solve because that's something you would solve just through through training, through having the right documentation and processes in place. But the other part of it, um, what was the other part of the question? That was the first part. Of this well, question, uh, what sorry. I was actually thinking of um, while I was asking um, the first part was um, a persona, building a, a persona um, for a buyer to ensure that um, it's important to actually keep the, I guess, the message fairly consistent between each individual that happens to be um, producing content on, on social media for the brand. Is, is that necessary to do that, to have the ideal customer in mind when you're writing content? Yeah, absolutely right. Um, so this is, this is at the core of all of your content marketing strategy. And really, your employees within a B2B organisation are, are really just an extension of that broader content marketing strategy, of which all feeds down from your ideal customer persona. And um, that persona, just as a bit of a sideline, shouldn't be 
you know, uh, we're targeting people, you know, middle-aged men between 35 and 45 that work in these industries. Industries is important, but the the kind of gender and demographic stuff, nowhere near as important as like the behavioral stuff, the things that really start to matter about the persona. What, what are these people that you're targeting, goals, ambitions, fears? What are they afraid of? What do they really want to achieve? Understanding the human emotional drivers of the people that you're trying to serve, that is the more important a persona or understanding of your persona that you can get. And I see so many businesses uh, get that wrong. Um, and someone that I'll, I'll mention later, actually, I won't, I won't spoil it right now, but someone I'll mention later talks about this all the time and has such a great narrative around and such great guidance for businesses creating personas. So yes, that's a long answer of, you know, me saying yes to your question that Ultimately, you as an organization, as a marketing organization within a B2B organization, you need to have a very clear target customer in mind, the things they're afraid of, the things that they want to achieve, and really make that very clear to anyone that is going to be, you know, having a more kind of public profile um, of your organization from a social media perspective. You've heard of that second part of the question. Okay, go for it. Yeah, I just remembered it. So you were like, should businesses be fearful of an employee um, that yes. has a voice yeah. and then leaves. So uh, I would point anyone in the in the direction of Drift for this one, because this is a really good example, right? So Dave Gerhard is a bit of a marketing hero of mine, and he was fundamental to the growth of Drift, which is a brilliant B2B organization. I think I often hold them up as you know some of the best B2B marketers that we see alongside HubSpot and, uh, and Salesforce. So um, that his voice on marketing was absolutely key to, to driving uh, Drift's growth because it makes logical sense. He's, he's a marketer, he's talking to marketing, and they sell to marketers. Shock horror, that works. And as a result, he's built his own personal brand and he's gone on to do wonderful things at other organizations. So he's carried his credibility with him. But the important thing is, is that Drift's credibility remains. Whilst they can't necessarily replace uh, Dave Gerhardt, his legacy lives on in the way that they talk, they talk to the market, the way that they educate and the whole narrative and tone of voice. It's, it's really to the point, it's incredibly concise. And it's got a really nice human tone to it. So my answer to that question is, yeah, I mean, you should not be scared of it. There's the opportunity exists both for the person who's doing this, because naturally, an individual like yourself or myself, representing a brand more publicly um there's opportunity even when employment changes but even for those those people those employers that are giving a platform to these individuals it's it's not actually the individual that remains at the front and center it's the kind of it's the narrative it's the impression it's that feeling of trust Mm -hmm. that you leave with your potential audience and that's that feeling of trust is the most powerful element yeah yeah great point there um I, i think it's important to let people um, be themselves and also um, give some of their personal brand authority to the company as well, because you get quite a decent amount of organic reach on things like LinkedIn profiles. And if you let people lead and be comfortable sharing content in their own voice on their own social profiles, the company brand is naturally going to win because of it as well. Um, I'll tell you what scared me most talk, talking about being scared of doing things was the one of the first things you said there um, was that um, middle-aged men um, from the ages of 35. Okay, so you become middle-aged at the age of 35. Okay, wow. <laughs> Sorry, well, I, I fit myself into that. No, I know. Just, so, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Sorry. Um, 
let's um, talk a little bit about mistakes and maybe mistakes that you see B2B brands making, perhaps without naming anyone. It would be great if you could name a brand, but <laughs> except that you're possibly not going to name a brand, a brand in, this, um, in this scenario. So what would be a typical type of mistake that a B2B brand makes with social media and what do they need to do differently to rectify it? Uh, yeah, that's a tough one to answer without giving examples. Um, but there, there are probably two core elements to it. Um, and I'm not, I don't class them as mistakes. I would class them as opportunities that have not yet been fulfilled. It's probably a, a better or opportunity that's not been realized is a better way of putting it. So number one, and that relates to kind of customer care on social. So I see lots of organizations, um, some in very close to our space, getting lots of interaction on social, um, but doing nothing with it. So typically responding very quickly to those sales inquiries, but for those slightly unhappy customers that have not received a response or not got the support they needed, not jumping on that immediately. Mm. Um, you know, customer care on social is just going to get bigger and bigger. And actually, it's actually an afterthought in so many organizations I speak to. Content strategies are built purely with like the output in mind. And marketing customer service teams typically work in very independent silos, yep. which for me is a massive mistake because marketers are typically the most withdrawn for actually what's actually happening in the market and with, with customers. The people that really know um, are sales, but even more so is customer service. Those organizations, those individuals in those departments are the ears of your organization. And I see so many marketing teams working in silos, just using their personas and just executing content strategies against that, which which has has its merit, has its place. But I don't see enough uh, organizations kind of getting more people around the table when it comes to defining a content strategy. So like what's coming up in sales conversations? What's the object, uh, objections we're seeing regularly? What's happening from a customer service perspective? Regular complaints, what are the things that people are asking for? So that kind of then leads into more of a social listening side of things in that I often don't see many organizations, certainly from a B2B perspective, keeping an ear out on social, not just for when they're mentioned or being complained about, but when people are talking about them, i.e., you know, what's the best social media tool to use, for example, listening to those conversations and, and having a place on that, not actively wading in with, you know, your sales boots, but wading in to participate and contribute to that conversation. Everything is happening on social right now. Uh, and in fact, like brand discovery through social has gone up 66% in the last four years for, for obvious reasons, right? People are turning to their social channels to make decisions, asking in Facebook groups saying, oh, what's the best tool to use? Can anyone recommend something? That is where kind of brand decisions and advocacy is built. And I see brands just focusing solely on their kind of just their content strategy, which has an importance definitely, but not really having their ears open to what's happening in the broader market sense. Mm. So uh, there's so many tools out there to do it. And it's, um, yeah, it's kind of inexcusable why you wouldn't do that. I love the fact that you talk about customer service teams and also sales teams as being a great resource for marketing teams. And they can tell you precisely what kind of questions prospects or 
existing customers actually ask. And that's a wonderful source for publishing content. As you say, I'm, I'm a great fan of um, Marcus Sheridan's book, They Ask, You Answer. And yeah, it, it talks about the help content and, and you know, what it's, it's, you know, initially what you should be writing about on your website. Uh, and it provides you with um, a great uh, starting point for your uh, SEO as well. Um, what about which platforms a B2B brand should be using? Uh, it seems obvious that a B2B brand should be on LinkedIn. Should be a, a B2B brand be on every social platform possible? I think it's a hard question to answer because in an ideal world, you'd be across all of them because anyone's customers are spread across all of them. And if someone says, oh, my customers aren't on TikTok, they would be wrong because they are. Um, but not exclusively TikTok. I'm just giving that as an example. With with 650 million monthly active users, there's no chance that your customers are not on TikTok, basically. So in an ideal world, you'd be everywhere. But that is not practical. But like the, the two biggest channels that are ranked that come out top for brand research is YouTube and Facebook. So they are the channels that B2B buyers, and there was, there was some data I need to find. I don't have the um, citation to hand right now, but uh, I remember looking at this research in January that B2B buyers their top two channels they go for research on what tools, what products to buy. They go to YouTube and then secondly, they go to Facebook. Actually, LinkedIn was quite far down the list. And LinkedIn is obviously the number one for most people's B2B social channels. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it shouldn't be. LinkedIn has a brilliant purpose, place to play. It's my personal favorite platform. But it just goes to show that actually thinking about those other channels, namely YouTube and, and Facebook, for example, really powerful if used correctly for b2b typically for facebook though i would say you know from from our own perspective from a b2b brand where we see most success is working in other facebook groups so working with those other group owners and uh, working with them to create content together for unique communities i'll talk about that kind of community approach later on but um so we that's where we see facebook doing really well for us our our personal facebook pages are are business page rather um it doesn't really do anything if i'm completely honest mm-hmm. our facebook group's pretty good um, so the work we do in facebook groups is really good but youtube has been a really good addition to our strategy fantastic for people discovering things and learning things a brilliant way of generating that educational content that you were talking about so i, I just see fa- youtube in particular missing from so many b2b content strategies and it's um yeah, it's, it's a massive mistake to not have YouTube as part of a strategy, that's and in my view. How do you measure the value of YouTube? If someone discovers you for the first time, discovers your channel, um, do you attempt to drive them back to your website? Um, or how else can you actually uh, measure the value of that view? Yeah, um, that is the big question. I don't, have a, I don't have a single answer for, you know, how do you measure the value of a view? My view is, is that the YouTube subscriber base, I don't really... I don't mind too much about how our subscriber base grows. I care lots about kind of watch time. Um, and and that kind of engagement is the thing that, that matters most. I don't really care so much about vanity metrics on, on YouTube, like subscribers, likes, comments particularly. It's about watch time and it's about retention. And because our content on YouTube is, is quite mid-funnel, so when someone will have uh, discovered us through somewhere else and now is kind of in the consideration stage, that's where our content's really good. So if someone's watching any of our videos for three minutes, four minutes, et cetera, they're, they're being told quite a content cow specific story. So whilst, you know, our Google analytics will tell us the traffic that we're coming, that comes back from, from YouTube, 
we don't put a necessary value on it but we we make sure that is part of our regular publishing cadence that's for sure because you know second largest search engine 2.4 billion monthly active users it's either 2.2 or 2.4 can't remember but either way a lot um so yeah it's just um it doesn't make sense not to be there especially with youtube shorts coming out which will be coming out in the next couple of months Mm. i'm really interested and excited about that actually turns youtube much more from like a long form destination for where you house your videos into much more kind of continual engagement on short form content so that's quite exciting do you spend any resources driving people to your youtube channel from email from retargeting or or from from some other place or do you just rely primarily on organic um discovery for youtube so it's primarily primarily organic discovery it's used for our regular content so like every week we do a a kind of weekly news roundup of everything that's happened in the world of social that goes on youtube um so that does get promoted in our newsletter and through our social channels but the rest of it is actually more housing um the uh, the videos that complement the blogs most of our blogs have some of vi- some form of video with them because it's you've got to kind of cater for people that like to consume information in in different ways mm-hmm. and all of our content is educationally led like five ways to do this or seven ways to do x or whatever it is so that kind of content that we've generated of which our content ideas have come from two two places so one our kind of quantitative research through you know from an seo perspective i.e what's the keyword volume and all that stuff and then our qualitative research which is the stuff i spoke about earlier which is what's our customer base saying feedback from marketing and sorry feedback from sales and, and customer service and the result of like social listening so that's our kind of qualitative stuff so that's the thing that informs our content strategy we produce you know educational content like i've just been mentioning and that educational content is always a blog with an embedded YouTube video. So that means that blog can be chopped up, put on social. That video will be either watched in that blog, that will be shared on social as well, as it's a kind of more appealing asset, uh, and also put on our YouTube. So that kind of, we're trying to find as many ways that we can kind of create once and publish everywhere as, as much as possible. It's always tempting to go further and further down that rabbit hole and say, okay, what do you produce yeah. first, the video or the blog? And, and, and we'll end up having a conversation for two hours here. So <laughs> let's segue into the part two of our discussion. So it's now time to turn for Andy's thoughts on the state of digital marketing today. So starting off with... Secret software. So Andy, share a lesser known <laughs> MarTech tool that's bringing you a lot of value at the moment and why that tool is important for you. Love it. So... Um, I would, I'm going to give Content Cal a plug here because I would be remiss if I didn't. So, but I'm hugely biased anyway, but we are one of those rare software companies that we build a, build a product that we use every single day. So anyway, Content Cal for content management, but you want to know a new tool, uh, veed.io, V-E-E-D.io. That is, like I mentioned, we do a lot of video content. So we want to make sure we subtitle those videos add little little bits of creative to it you know some some titles being able to add some animations really simple for like a video editing novice like myself we can smash things together so so quickly um so i find that a really powerful tool to use and it's great for snipping things to like the the right aspect ratio for uh for instagram for youtube etc so really good to 
create an asset, a video asset really quickly and easily, add a nice bit of creative stuff and chop it up into the right formats so that uh, YouTube can be slung on YouTube. Same for, for Instagram, Facebook, etc. Vid.io. Wonderful. And um, such a pro having the website address as well. Uh, I want to say a quick hi to Saya Mahon watching live on Facebook, um, who's liked the video. Thanks um, for liking it, Saya. We'll have to get you on a future episode of Digital Marketing Radio. Good to have you tuning in there. But uh, let's move on from something that Andy currently uses to something that um, he's going to use. And that is next on the list. So what's one marketing activity or tool that you haven't tried yet, but you want to test soon? I'm split between two here, so I'm actually going to give two again. Um, so one is a product I just found on Product Hunt, actually, or is a month ago now. Uh, it's called CopySmith. So CopySmith is a um, machine learning type of copy editor. So uh, I'm going to do a massive disservice in how I describe them. But it's built using GPT-3, which is a machine learning technology. If you read about GPT-3, if you don't know already, the fascinating rabbit hole to go down. Um but ultimately, this allows you to put in a few keywords and it uses machine learning and like assimilates so many different articles on the same subject from across the web to produce really good drafts of like, like snippets, long form blog posts and automatically creates those for you. Now, you still need the mind of a copywriter to edit those. But to get some of that core copy done, yeah, it's super, super powerful and great to, to be able to write a draft as well. Because that's the thing with with content marketing. There's quite a lot of duplicative stuff we end up doing, writing the same copy or descriptions of our company, writing different kind of keywords or little kind of headers here and there. There's quite a lot of duplicative stuff we end up doing. So finding ways that can help us do some of that kind of more donkey work, really, of getting some kind of core drafts of uh, some copy written up for us to then edit thereafter. So, yeah, CopySmith. I think it's CopySmith.ai. Um, but yeah, really interesting um, to see how this GPT-3 te- technology is evolving. And then uh, second to that, which is slightly more kind of like nowadays, because CopySmith is probably like, you know, next generation software. Um, slightly more nowadays is probably a tool that I imagine you've used, David, which is Descript. Yeah. Do you know Descript? Yeah, I, I've used it a little bit. Um, I haven't actually integrated it 100% in every single podcast um, episode that I produce, primarily because um, I, for some podcast that I produce for clients, I've got to be really subtle with um, the edits that I do. And I think Descript um, do great um, editing based upon removing words. And then um, the audio obviously is automatically removed. I'm not sure how much in depth they go into the specific aspects of different um, audio tracks that you can edit individually and things like that. But perhaps you can tell me. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, you, you're probably as much an expert on it than, as I am, because this is this is next on my list because of doing lots of video stuff and always having a transcript associated to these videos because to answer your question earlier is it blog before video Uh, our approach is that um to do video typically and then have the blog produced thereafter so something like descript is amazing because you can just get the transcript of it and then naturally as you're kind of doing a video there's ums and ahs or you might think actually i could phrase that better so it's really nice to be able to chop up a bit of the the audio just chop the transcript as well so it just saves you editing both the transcript and the um the video at the same time so all of that kind of it saves a lot of like chopping up and editing time like like you say david there's if you want to go proper pro level um there are probably better tools but for, for someone like like us, where we're producing lots of content and maybe it's not polished to the nth degree, but has enough value, um, those kind of tools are really good. Once again, just cutting those 
duplicative processes out of content marketing as much as possible to speed up the flow of content really absolutely yes there's a fine line between quality and quantity and you can't get everything necessarily absolutely pristine even though i'm probably guilty of trying to do that or erring on that side more than actually publishing too often that, that's why it's great to actually committing to doing a podcast or doing a live show because then you've kind of got to do it and it's not going to be utterly perfect all the time indeed yeah okay. i'm with you on that well let's move on to the this or that round so this is the quick response round 10 quick questions just two rows here try not to think about the answer too much and you're only allowed to say the word both on one occasion so you use it wisely are you ready <laughs> all right i'll try tiktok or twitter twitter facebook or linkedin linkedin youtube or podcast youtube traffic or leads Leads. Paid search or SEO? SEO. Ads or influencers? Influencers. Google ads or Facebook ads? Google ads. Email or chat? Email. Martech stack or all-in-one platform? Martech stack. One-to-one or scale? Scale. That was a breeze for you. No problem at all. I I was... um, Partly thinking that you were going to actually select chat instead of email because you were talking about drift earlier on there as well, but you're obviously still a fan of email marketing. I am. It's it still is like uh, Dave Gerhard actually describes email as the money button um, <laughs> because he he now works in a B two C organization. It's just and we see the same. It's like whenever we're struggling for um, for kind of attendance on a webinar or something, as soon as we put something out on on email, we will see the result off the back of it. So. Um, yeah, chat has its place, but if you're talking about getting a message at scale, um, to a mass audience email still, if you do it well, which I think we've still got a a way to improve, to be honest, but if you do it well, um, then yeah, there's a huge opportunity in email. And a little follow-up question then, what's the best way for a B2B brand to build an email list? For us, the best way that we've, we've built an email list has been all through our webinars and our academy that we created. So we had produced so many webinars uh, over the course of a year that we turned all of the recordings of these webinars because we made sure these webinars were super actionable, um, like five steps to do X or whatever, that kind of format. Because we made all these webinars super actionable, they let it, lent themselves really well to, to being nested in, the, in an academy, which then provided a nice free resource of a whole load of content, like how to do Google ads, how to do uh, LinkedIn ads, how to do you know organic you know, LinkedIn, for example, how to set up employee advocacy, all this kind of stuff. Um, we've really let into the um, academy stuff. We've gone massive on like educational content, um, things that we know that our market needs to know. So, um, and because we've given away so much value through that, um, probably frustrated some people in our peer group by offering all of that for free. Um, but ultimately it's built it's built a email list that is 60,000 people strong. Okay. So, um, yeah, and then that's, that's how we did that. And the majority of that has all happened within the last year because we launched our academy uh, and started doing these kind of courses uh, last March. And do you use any paid traffic to drive people towards that academy content? Uh, no, we don't actually. So that's a lot of that comes from organic um so we promote all that through organic channels. Uh, we have a community of 
influencers i use that in the lightest sense possible but people that we work with that have a similar kind of worldview to us like those facebook groups i mentioned earlier working with others because we're producing valuable content of which is good for other people's communities too so that's been a good traffic draw to, to bring it back we're we're big on paid stuff let it be said though for more kind of uh, direct response so okay. signing people up to our 14 day trial mm. um we do you know uh, google ads works very very well for us um so does eh, to a lesser extent facebook ads but they they do work okay let's move on to the ten thousand dollar question if i was to give you ten thousand dollars and you had to spend it over the next few days in a single thing to grow your business what would you spend it on and how would you measure success influencers please so and when i say influencers i'm not saying um like go pay someone x amount ten thousand to do a post who's you know unconnected to your brand I would work with that $10,000 with as many kind of smaller owners of communities as I could. So great examples from from what we've done is uh, people might be familiar with this community already, or if they're not, they probably should be, uh, which is the marketing meetup um, run by a guy called Joe Glover. Uh, He's brilliant and, you know, has such brilliant values that align with our brand. And we've spoken about trust a couple of times in this this, um, session today. And that is fundamental to everything you do, everything you do as an organization, B2B, B2C, whatever, it all comes down to trust because trust is a thing that predicates reputation and your reputation predicates your brand. So really it's all down to trust. And the best way to build trust is both by putting the humans behind your brand to the fore, like we were speaking about right at the start, and also working with others that have already earned that trust. So Joe Glover is trusted by his community of 25,000 marketers because um, he produces fantastic, valuable content for them. And it's a community that's just focused on adding value. That absolutely aligns with our mission here at Content Cal. So that is a no brainer to, to work with. So uh, we don't have time to go into the details of like how, how to work with influencers, probably another, another session. Mm. But ultimately, where there's a really good value exchange where there's a complementary offering between a community and, um, you know, and a vendor or whomever, like us in this instance, a B2B software vendor, where there's really good alignment. Um, There's already trust in the community and us being brought in into that community is like a, a seal of approval from Joe who runs a community that, you know, these are someone's to, to be trusted. Now that trust needs to be used very carefully because you know, you could easily go in that group and start selling, but that's not the way it works. It's about a long-term thing and it's about how we build trust over the long-term. So with that $10,000, I would find as many of those kind of communities as possible and build trust from the ground up. And that's the thing that will drive scale over the long-term because um, digital marketing is all wonderful, but ultimately all it is is word of mouth on steroids. So if you can start, um, you know, engineering word of mouth from the grassroots level, then you'll be onto a winner. That's great. And um, just a slight follow-up to your intention to spend the $10,000 on influencers. Is it easy enough to measure the success of that? Do you give everyone an individual trackable link? We'll try and track it. We obviously UTM codes, discount offer codes, you know, that kind of stuff to help you track it. But fundamentally, all you'll see, you know, some you will be able to attribute some by that, but you need to kind of step back and realize there are some things in marketing like this you just can't track um you can't truly attribute everything um so you need to you need to kind of relax in the knowledge that you know this is the right thing to do 
Um, but safe in the knowledge that you can't actually attribute everything because someone's going to find you through and come in through organic or direct traffic and you won't you won't really know where you've where they found out about you unless you always get your salespeople to to ask but if you're just a kind of like you know a non-sales led business an online business there's a lot of that you'll never know so outside of trackable links and um and offer codes which you know we we offer like an offer for any any um any member of the community which they use but Many people forget to use the links and a lot of people don't even redeem the offer. And that, I think, I think to be honest, that's a, it's an, it's an important message for marketers in general. And it's, and it's hard. It's a hard um, mess, like conversation to have with leaders of a business mm. is that for a lot of this stuff, um, you need to actually relax into the fact that you can't attribute everything. You can't like, you can't track everything. And to be honest, that's going to get harder and harder as time goes on, not easier um, in the light of what's happening with Facebook and Apple and the light of what's happening with Google cookies as well. So there's there's a whole load of change in terms of tracking. And and it's the kind of this obsession with um, attribution. And I'm not, I'm not saying like data doesn't serve its purpose, but, you know, there's it's part art and part science um, marketing. So whether it's content marketing or digital, or whatever, it's it's still part art and part science. And there's, there is a place for, for tracking performance. But it's also worthwhile not getting completely hung up on it because you'll never track ever, everything. And if anyone tells you they can track everything, they're telling a porcupine. I think digital marketers probably need to get a little bit better at being able to tell the story or position the value of what they're doing in a this is what we perceive the value is. Um, because um, if they say the full real story to some leaders and organizations and say, look, um, we think it's good, but I don't think it's, tra- uh, it's trackable, it's impossible to measure it, it becomes much more difficult to get budget uh, for something. And traditionally, p- PR agencies, traditional PR agencies for um, TV, uh, for radio, for newspapers a lot of that was guess guesswork and they they were just very good at presenting the value of what they did based upon a lot of presumptions and, and that's exactly it and there's you're absolutely right there's there's a case to be made and you can you can put a notional value on traffic because most people will know their com- average conversion rates site traffic to lead to to paying subscriber or whatever it's not it's not that hard to figure out those kind of those metrics average sales price of customer cost of acquisition work that back up into a model of, you know, that will say, here's a nominal uh, value for, for each new visit to our site. So we can make some presumptions based on the size of the community and how many how many new people we'd bring over here and the value of a, you know, of a lead. So there's, there's absolutely some modeling that's going on there, but to prove it unequivocally is, is going to be super tough. And um, it's actually this obsession with attribution that actually damages content marketing and means that many people don't realize the opportunity within it until it's too late because you know this was some data out from linkedin recently where linkedin's kind of contention was that they were seeing so much budget go into like direct response short-term kind of ads that are intended to drive a conversion and because it's so easy to to put money into those ads and it's so easy to see whether something you know works or doesn't is that in, in businesses' quest for short-term results, which is typically how most businesses are orientated based on monthly or quarterly results, that's why paid social gets so much budget share and the paid team gets so much more budget share rather than a typical content marketing team is because, you know, it's so easy to, to prove. And it's it's actually very, it's, it's a real kind of limiting um, 
and a bit of a dubious strategy because paid stuff will only serve short term goals it will not build your brand over the long term because you're only serving a message to a smaller defined list of people whereas content marketing is about going broad so it's all about having a good mix between the two but my point was just like you know with the session of attribution too many people focus too many on like too many short-term wins and not they take their eye off the long-term stuff the thing that grows over time but ultimately you just can't see it you know in a snapshot on an excel spreadsheet and it's having that kind of faith and having that confidence to pitch that to, to your marketing director or CEO, whatever that might be, to say, you know, this is a long term game. But if we want to build a brand, we're going to have to be in it. Wow. OK, tempted to have so many follow ups from there, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to move on to someone else who deserves it. And that is a magical marketer. Who's an up and coming marketer that you'd like to give a shout out to? What can we learn from them and where can we find them? Awesome. So uh, I'm going to take uh, Louis Grenier and see if my French pronunciation of his name. Um, yeah. How was I, David? Uh, trop bien. Uh, super. Yes. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Um, so uh, Louis Grenier, he runs a podcast called Everyone Hates Marketers, which is one brilliantly titled. Um, but two, he talks lots about that kind of persona stuff that I was talking at the about at the beginning about like, forgetting the age demographics or you know or gender demographics so much in your persona and thinking more about the customer's behaviors think about the human drivers behind them he talks a lot about that and just on his podcast he gets such brilliant guests um that you know um i definitely recommend that so you can check out when you find him on everyone hates marketers and you'll find that podcast on all the usual places um, and you can follow me on Twitter um, at Louis Slices. So uh, L-O-U-I-S Slices. Not entirely sure um, what that's all about. But um, yeah, he's very good nonetheless. And I think um, that his, his kind of key narrative is about radical differentiation. And that on this, maybe this is the final point, I don't know. But um, creativity in marketing is like, the real or the final unfair advantage, right? So creativity is a thing that separates, you know, us from them, Separ it really separates a really good brand. And creativity is all about like this radical differentiation, how you can look at what's gone in the past and how you can take a different spin on that. And he's big on like talking about how brands can can differentiate themselves in a, in a radical way. And he's, you know, he used to, um, I think it was senior marketing at Hotjar and they did some brilliant stuff at Hotjar. So, um, yeah, I think I've, I've blown enough smoke. Uh, <laughs> and some <laughs> flames as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah. yeah, check him out. He's brilliant. Superb um, resource and um, superb final point there. You have been listening to Andy Lambert, the Director of Growth for Content Cal. So in today's episode, Digital Marketing Radio shared lots of wonderful specific tips. Um, I love the um, Dave Gayhart recommendation. Don't be afraid to let individuals share their own personality as well. Um, secret software as well. You're talking about Veed, um, the video creation, creation service, Veed.io, I think you said that was that. Next in list, you were talking about copysmith.ai as the um, co copy editor and descript um, is what we want to try as well. Um, Louis Gray uh, was the uh, magical marketer that you shared as well everyone everything that you shared um, will be in the show notes at digitalmarketingradio.com and of course in the show description on uh, YouTube Andy um, what's the best social platform for someone to follow you and say hi uh, LinkedIn is, is my thing so yeah you can just find me Andy Lambert on LinkedIn um, yeah I'm sure you'll find me I'm sure you will indeed. Um, well, um, 
if you want to watch the next episode live, um, sign up on the YouTube channel, um, uh, Digital Marketing Radio. Just search for Digital Marketing Radio on YouTube. You'll find us there. You can, of course, um, listen to us on your favorite podcast player. It's probably Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. We're even on there. So whichever podcast app is your favorite, make sure you're subscribing and you're also listening live if if that is your preferred medium. Um, Until we meet again, stay hungry, stay foolish, and stay subscribed. Aloha. DigitalMarketingRadio.com DigitalMarketingRadio.com DigitalMarketingRadio DigitalMarketingRadio DigitalMarketingRadio.com DigitalMarketingRadio.com